chapter 12, verse 49, through chapter 13, verse 9, verses 49 through 53. I am to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I come to give peace on earth? I tell ye, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Burkett notes, Our Savior in these verses declares what will be the accidental event and effect and not the natural tendency of his religion, so that we must distinguish between the intentional aim of Christ's coming and the accidental event of it. Christ's intentional aim was to plant, propagate, and promote peace in the world. But through the lusts and corruption of men's nature, the issue and event of his coming is war and division. Not that these are the genuine and natural fruits of the gospel, but occasional and accidental only. Hence learn that the preaching of the gospel and setting up the kingdom of Christ, though it be not the genuine and natural cause, yet it is the accidental occasion of all that war and tumult, of all that dissension and division, of all that distraction and confusion which the world abounds with. I am come to send fire on the earth. He is said to send the fire of dissension because he foresaw this would be the certain consequence, though not the proper and natural effect, of the preaching of the gospel. There was another fire of Christ sending, the Holy Spirit. This was a fire to warm, not to burn. Or if so, not men's persons, but corruptions. But that seems not to be intended in this place. Observe farther the metaphor by which Christ sets forth his own sufferings. He styles them a baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with. There is a threefold baptism spoken of, a baptism with water, a baptism of the Spirit. Both these Christ had been baptized with, but the third was the baptism of blood. He was soon to be drenched and washed in his own blood, in the garden and on the cross, and he was straightened or pained with desire, like a woman in travail, till his sufferings were accomplished. Verses 54 through 57. And he also said to the people, When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straight away you say, There cometh a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Yea, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? Briquet notes, Our Savior, in these words, doth at once abrade the stupid ignorance of the Jews in general and the obstinate infidelity of the Pharisees in particular, in that they could make a judgment of the weather by the sight of the sky, by the appearance of the heavens, and the motion of the winds, but could not discern this time of the Messiah, though they had so many miraculous signs and evidences of it. And for this he abrades them with hypocrisy. Ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky but you do not discern this time. Learn hence that to pretend either more ignorance or greater uncertainty in discerning the signs of gospel times, the time of our gracious visitation, than the other signs of the weather is great hypocrisy. Ye hypocrites, can ye not discern this time? 
Observe farther that Christ does not here condemn the study of nature or making observations of the state of the weather by the face of the sky. For Almighty God, by natural signs, gives us warnings of a change in natural things, and like manner, by his providential dispensation, he gives us warnings of change in civil things. He that is wise will observe both, and by their observation will come to understand the pleasure of the Lord. Verses 58 and 59. Whence thou goest with thy adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, Give diligence, that thou may be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge delivereth thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell you, thou shalt not depart thence, till thou hast paid the very last might. Burkett notes, In these words our Savior advises persons to use the same prudence in divine manners, which they use in worldly affairs, and the same endeavors to seek reconciliation with God, which they put forth in order to their being reconciled unto men. For in such a case, when they see an action bringing against them, wherein they are sure to be cast, their best way is presently to seek to reconcile their adversary and make their peace with him, so that they may escape the threatening danger. In like manner should they do here, lay hold upon the present opportunity of mercy now offered to them, because it is a fearful thing to die without reconciliation with God. Note here, 1. That God and man were once friends. 2. That God and man are now adversaries. 3. That man, and not God, is averse to reconciliation and agreement. 4. That it is the wisdom, the duty, and interest of fallen man speedily to accept the terms of peace and reconciliation with God. 5. That an eternal prison will be their portion, who die in their enmity against God. Chapter 13 Verses 1 through 3. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Burkett notes, there were two eminent sects among the Jews in our Savior's time, namely the Herodians and Galileans. The former stood stiffly for having tribute paid to the Roman emperor, whose subjects the Jews now were. But the Galileans, so-called probably from Judas of Galilee, mentioned in Acts 5.37, opposed this tribute and often raised rebellion against the Roman power. Pilate takes the opportunity when these Galileans were come up at the Passover and sacrificing in the temple to fall upon them with his soldiers and barbarously mingled their own blood with the blood of the sacrifices which they offered. Neither the holiness of the place, the temple, nor the sacredness of the action, sacrificing, could divert Pilate from his barbarous impiety. Our Savior, understanding that some of his hearers then present, concluded these persons to be the greatest sinners because they were the greatest sufferers, he corrects their errors in this manner and assures them that the same or like judgments did hang over all other sinners as well as these, if timely and sincere repentance prevented not. Learn hence, one, that a violent and sudden death is no argument of God's disfavor. Two, that notwithstanding, persons are exceeding prone to pass rash censures and uncharitable judgment upon such as die suddenly especially if they die violently. 3. 
that none can justly conclude such persons to have been the greatest sinners who have been in this world, the most signal sufferers. For that the best use we can make of such instances an example of God's severity is to examine our own lives, and by a speedy repentance to prevent our own perdition. I tell you, nay, etc. Verses 4 and 5. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell ye, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Burkett notes, Another instance our Savior gives of persons that fell by a sudden death, even eighteen that were slain by the fall of a tower in Jerusalem. He takes occasion from thence to caution the Jews that they did not rigidly censor the sufferers or conclude that those have wrought the most sin who were brought to most shame. Oh, how ready we are to judge of men's eternal condition by their present visitation, and to conclude them the greatest offenders upon whom God inflicts the most visible punishments. Our Savior forbids this and advises everyone to look at home, telling the whole body of the Jews that if they did not repent, they should all likewise perish, and that in two ways. One, by a certain a punishment as these did. Two, ye shall likewise perish by the same kind of punishment. Ye shall perish by the ruin of your whole city, as they did by the downfall of that tower, if a timely and sincere repentance did not intervene. Learn hence that we must judge of persons by their conversation towards God and not by God's dispensations toward them. All things here fall alike to all. A sudden death, yea, a violent death, as it comes upon many men, so it will come upon the best of men as well as others. Think not, says Christ, that those eighteen were sinners above all that dwelt in Jerusalem because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish, teaching us that repentance is the only way and means to prevent punishment here and perishing thereafter. Except ye repent, ye shall perish. Verses 6 and 7. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why encumbereth it the ground? Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, that he might excite the Jews to the practice of the last-mentioned duty of repentance, sets forth his long-suffering with them, and forbearance towards them, by the parable of the fig tree, which the master of the vineyard had long expected fruit therefrom, but found none. Where note the great care that God takes to make poor sinners happy. He plants them in his church as in a vineyard, that by cultivating care of his ministers and the fructifying influences of his spirit, they may be fruitful in good works. Note, too, that God keeps an exact account or reckoning what means and advantages every place and people have enjoyed. These three years I have come seeking fruit, alluding to the three years of his own ministry among them. God keeps a memorial how many years the gospel has been amongst the people, how many ministers they've had, how long with them, what pathetical exhortations, what pressing admonitions, what cutting reproofs. All are upon the files and must be accounted for. Learn three, that God expects suitable and proportional fruit from a people according to the time of their standing in his vineyard and answering to the cost and culture which his ministers have expended upon them 
and the pains they have taken with them. Note farther, for, that although God doth and justly may expect fruit from such as are planted in his vineyard, to wit, the Christian church, yet he expects it with much patience and forbearance, waiting from year to year to see if time will work amendment. These three years I have come seeking fruit and found none. Lastly, if after all the cost that God has bestowed upon a people by his ministers and ordinances, they continue unfruitful, there is nothing to be expected but excision and final destruction. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Verses 8 and 9. And he, answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the vine dresses petition and request, Lord, let it alone this year also. This points out unto us the office and duty of the ministers of God, who are laborers in his vineyard, to be intercessors with God for sparing a barren and unfruitful people. Lord, spare them a little longer, let alone this year also. If they cannot absolutely prevent judgment coming upon an unfruitful people, yet they endeavor to respite it and delay its coming all they can. Observe, too, the condition upon which the vine dresses petition is grounded, till I shall dig about it and dung it, phrases which intimate unto us the nature and quality of the ministerial work and service, signifying it to be a very difficult and laborious service. Digging is a painful work, and a spending work, and such is our ministerial work, if followed as it ought to be. We deal in mysteries, in the deep things of God, which are not received without much digging. Observe three, a double supposition here made by the vine dresser. First, a future fruitfulness. If it bear fruit, well. Secondly, a future incorrigibleness. If not, after that thou shalt cut it down. One, here is a supposition of future fruitfulness. If it bear fruit, well. That is, it will be well for the master of the vineyard. Herein he is glorified when his fig trees bear much fruit. Well for the dresser of the vineyard. It rejoices the ministers of God to see their people bring forth fruit unto God. Well for the vineyard and for the rest of the trees that are in it, but more especially well for the tree itself thereby avoiding the punishment of barrenness and procuring the reward of fruitfulness. Thus, if it bear fruit, well. Here is a supposition of future incorrigibleness. After that, thou shalt cut it down. That is, after thou hast spared it, and I have pruned it, after thy patience and my pains, after thou hast forborne it, and I have manured it, digged and dung it. If after all this it bear no fruit, then I have not a word more to say. Thou shalt cut it down. Thou mayest cut it down. Nobody will go about to hinder thee. From hence learn that a people's continued unfruitfulness under the means of grace doth in time take off the prayers and intercessions of the ministers of God for them and provokes God to bring his judgments unavoidably and irrevocably upon them. And after that, thou shalt cut it down.